Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Martin Reeves is a managing director and senior partner at BCG's San Francisco office and chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, where he explores ideas from beyond the world of business, which have implications for business strategy management. He is the author of The Imagination Machine, How to Spark New Ideas and Create Your Company's Future, the series Inspiring the Next Game, Strategy Ideas for Forward-Looking Leaders, and one of my favorite strategy books of all time, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, How to Choose and Execute the Right Approach. He's also published numerous articles in top business journals like MIT Sloan Management Review and Harvard Business Review. I connected with Martin on an innovation panel this year and being a longtime fan of his work, immediately asked him to join the podcast. And we're lucky that he is here. A perennial generalist, Martin's interests range widely, and our conversation was no less narrow. We sought to cover as much as we could. In this episode, he shares what strategy stacks are and why you need to start thinking about them. Six steps that creativity theory shows are needed to harness imagination in yourself and in your company. Why business strategy can no longer follow a one-size-fits-all model. And how ecosystem-based competition differs in some important ways from the company-to-company battles that most of our strategy knowledge is based on today. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Reeves. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to have you here. Pleasure, Kai. I'm looking forward to it. I'd like to get to know you and give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit personally. And so could you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. That's a tough one. I guess people say I'm the last generalist standing. I'm a proud generalist in a very specialized world. I have no choice. I'm just interested in everything. But I do believe that in this world of complex, indivisible problems, perhaps generalists have an important role to play as well as experts. Yes. So this is a podcast about strategy. And I ask this question of every guest, almost all of them strategy experts. I never get the same answer. So my question is, what is your definition of strategy? Well, the thing is, any definition which is too precise will have to change because strategy is about competition. So whatever worked yesterday will not work tomorrow. So we not only need different strategies, we need different approaches to strategy. So I define strategy as any systematic pattern of thought or action, which increases the probability of favorable outcomes. I use this definition because it reminds me that strategy is not planning, strategy is not monopolized by one particular framework, or even nowadays restricted to the traditional discipline of strategy. I mean, personally, I haven't seen a strategy assignment or strategy problem for about 10 years that didn't consist of elements of what traditionally might have been thought of as strategy as well as organization and technology, hence my definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really resonate with your work and view of strategy and strategy stacks, which I'm excited to get into. You've covered so many topics. Which ones have been most well-received or adopted? What would you say you're known for? 
As a passionate generalist, that's a very hard question. I do like to look at all important managerial problems and strategic problems, but I guess I put most effort into my two last books on strategy. Your strategy needs a strategy, which is about the idea of meta strategies, but the idea that you don't just need a strategy, you need to understand the situation you're in, how competition works in that situation, and what sort of strategy you need. So I look at five different approaches to strategy. I've got planning. I look at adapting. I look at visioning or you know entrepreneurialism. I look at collaborating in the context of ecosystems and I look at strategies of renewal and write about the different tools and approaches and skills that you need for each and how to choose the right approach to strategy for each environment. And then probably the second one would be my latest book on the imagination machine, which is essentially about the visionary approach to strategy, creating new unprecedented things in the world through entrepreneurial activity and the strategy, both the external strategy, the actions, but also the thoughts and the mindset and the communication and the teamwork that go in to building new things in the world through corporations. Got it. So can you just unpack a little bit the strategy of strategies? For me personally, that's particularly interesting because I kind of have viewed strategy as a flow of concepts that are introduced to solve a problem. And then we kind of build this collection over the last thousand years of different concepts that change sometimes their paradigms or mindsets or things like that. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So I can give you the origin story of the book. Most new books on strategy claim that something important has happened in the world and therefore we need a new approach to strategy. And as you say, we have a plethora of them. We have hundreds of approaches and frameworks. So one thing I was thinking about was how do all these frameworks relate to each other? Which ones are complementary? Which ones are contradictory? And how would you choose the right framework for each circumstance? That was one thought that was going on. The second thought is I was asking myself the question, what is the approach to strategy that we need in today's uncertain, dynamic, technology-intensive environment? And I came to realize that that was the wrong question because when I looked at strategic environments, when I looked at the uncertainty of the planability of different situations, situations, when I looked at the malleability of different situations, and when I looked at the harshness of different situations and plotted all companies and industries on that matrix, what I found was that one very important shift in strategy is that we now have a greater diversity of environments. So therefore, whatever generalization we might want to make of our strategy is increasingly inapplicable to the whole. And therefore, we need to ask pluralistically, not what the approach is to strategy in the modern business environment, but which approach is applicable under which circumstances. So that led to the idea of the strategy palette, which is like the canonical approaches to strategy. And I distinguish five and which one you need to adopt under which circumstances. So essentially, if you have a reasonably planable environment, then you use classical strategy. That's not obsolete, but it's no longer a panacea. We still have some industries that are relatively planable. Anything to do with demographics is relatively planable. So if you're in the funeral urn industry, then you can predict demand reasonably well. Many industries are now adaptive in the sense that we don't know what's coming next, but we can arrange ourselves to learn faster about new circumstances than competitors. That would be the art of adaptation with advantage. There's still an important role for entrepreneurs. In fact, more new industries are being created than ever before because of progress in technology. So therefore, we need strategies for industries that don't yet exist, the pioneering acts of strategy. And then we have this new species of strategy, which was fringe 10 years ago. Only one of the world's 10 largest companies 10 years ago was a digital platform for engendering the collaboration of hundreds of enterprises. But now seven of the top 10 companies in the space of just 10 years are multi-hundred company collaborative ecosystems. So that's not only a new approach to strategy, that's a different unit of analysis. We're not talking about the strategy of the corporation there. We're talking about the strategy of a collaborative collection of corporations. Those are doors that I would love to go down and explore. And we don't have as much time, of course, as they deserve. But maybe if I don't mind just like peeking down the ecosystem 
system door, because that's something that comes up a lot with our chief strategy officer members. The idea of competing on the ecosystem, that being the unit of measure, do the sources of competitive advantage change? It can easily mislead because our instincts from corporate strategy won't necessarily translate. So for start, the unit of analysis is different. We're talking about a collection of companies. Secondly, we're talking about something which is not fully controllable. It's not within the legal boundaries of the company. So there's no command and control. It's all about shaping and nudging and persuading. And the most important aspect of that is it's completely voluntary. Nobody has to join your ecosystem. So one interesting paradox is that any company thinking about ecosystems naturally sees itself as the orchestrator. But you do the arithmetic, 99% of them must be wrong because there's only one orchestrator in multi-hundred company ecosystems. So qualification to be an orchestrator is a very important aspect of this. And then complexity. Even if you had the sort of legal and formal control, you couldn't manage the complexity of everything in an ecosystem. So Alibaba, have worked with them a little bit, and Alibaba has an interesting aphorism. They say, never let an MBA near an ecosystem. And what they mean by that is that managers are trained to manage. But the whole point of an ecosystem is that it's a self-tuning, autocatalytic, adaptive enterprise. So keep the managers away from things they shouldn't be managing because that's the entire point. I love that. I love that. So if you put an MBA near an ecosystem, does it become a platform? Well, it becomes an exercise in planning. You know, a manager will ask questions like, which product should we adopt and what should the price be? But of course, we now have algorithms that automatically adjust to each circumstance and each moment to solve those problems. And there are many reasons why we shouldn't try to manage those problems. Number one, we end up with a very low dimensionality solution. You know, if we use the algorithmic solutions, we can optimize for millions of segments and types of customers each second. If we do a two by two in the marketing department, we're optimizing for four segments. Also, things change. Consumers will want something one minute and they'll get bored with that and then they'll want something else. And the platform needs to adjust accordingly. We talk about AI substituting routine management as if it is some foreboding possibility in the future, but actually it's already happened to the marketing department through the algorithmic marketing platforms of digital ecosystems. Mm-hmm. That's really my interest, but I know that a lot of people are interested in the work that you do around creativity of strategy. So you relate strategy to play. What does strategy have to do with play? Well, I'm quite interested in the technicalities of strategy. I'm analytical by nature and originally a scientist, so I am interested in the analysis, but I'm also interested in the human side of strategy. Where does the spark come from? Where does the idea come from? How do people get inspired to pursue a new idea? It seemed to me that this creative side of strategy is neglected within the discipline of strategy. So there is a separate discipline of innovation and creativity. But I wanted to know about the role of creativity in strategy. And also I wanted to go inside the mind of the strategist too, because strategy is partly about what you do, but it's also partly about what you think. And so for years, I've been wanting to do something about how ideas originate and propagate. So I wrote this book, The Imagination Machine, which essentially asked the question, how can we systematize? imagination so that companies can get some degree of control over their ability to rejuvenate and reimagine and reinvent themselves. Now, to many people, that sounds like a paradox because we have this idea, which is actually a hangover from the Romantic era in the arts, that imagination is about the divine inspiration that comes unpredictably in an unruly fashion to very special people like Steve Jobs in moments that couldn't possibly be managed or harnessed. But that always seemed to me to be rather strange because, you know, in business, we don't say, 
say, oh, consumer psychology, it's so complex and magical, we shouldn't even think about it. We don't say, oh, you know, team motivation and team composition, it's too unwieldy, you know, we should just leave it to divine acts of nature or something. So I started looking at the science of imagination and imaginative companies, companies that created something new in the world, especially companies that did it twice. They imagined something and made it a reality, and then they reimagined themselves and created a second reality. It seemed to me that this was every bit as tractable as any other complex aspect of human affairs. And so I wrote the book about managing the process of harnessing imagination, the six steps that constitute that. Could you walk us through? Do we have enough time for you to walk us through these six steps? Yeah. So the neuroscience says that human beings have rich mental models. We can imagine things that are not the case, which could be the case, which is actually not the opposite of analytical thinking. It builds on top of analytic thinking because there's a difference between imagination and fantasy. Imagination doesn't break the law of physics. It says consistent with what I know about how the world works, what could be the case that isn't the case. So why do we have these mental models and when do we reimagine things? Well, the neuroscience says it comes from surprise. The first step is what I call the seduction, which is the reason to reimagine. The reason to reimagine is usually because of a surprise. It can be an accident. I was trying to do this and this other thing happened. It can be an anomaly. Normally this happens, but these customers did something different. Or it can be an analogy. Hey, this is a bit like that other thing and that does this, so why can't this? And so that stage is all about exposure to surprise. Now, one of the characteristics of corporations is the larger they get, the more introverted they become. So actually, they become less exposed to surprise, A, because they're less externally oriented, and B, because they're steeped in their own mental models. They begin to mistake their mental models for facts rather than choices. So that's stage one. Stage two is the part which is perhaps most connected to the popular idea of imagination. It's working the idea. So supposing I have a headline. So in the 1940s, Charles Merrill thought, hey, you know, a financial institution doesn't have to be a gentleman's club. It could be like a supermarket with products and transparent pricing and could be products for everyone. And so you imagine the modern idea of a bank, but you can't test a one-liner. You have to elaborate the thought. And so this is the art of counterfactual thinking. There is an art of counterfactual thinking. It consists of things like listing the components of an idea, creating a visual representation of an idea, recombining the components, applying constraints, removing constraints. There are techniques for counterfactual thinking, thinking about things that are not the case, that could be the case. It's just that few of us have been taught those techniques since kindergarten. So it's an important discipline of elaborating ideas and counterfactual thinking. And the most important part of that is to understand that a mental model is a choice, not a fact. And you can have multiple mental models for any situation. The third stage is what I call the collision. The collision is where you take the new mental model and you you collide it with reality. And I don't call this experimentation or verification because that's just one of the things that's going on. Obviously, in some sense, you're testing your new mental model of the business. So Charles Merrill would say, well, let's try it. Let's see what happens. But the other thing that's going on is in that collision, you're actually generating new surprises, new sources of inspiration. And in fact, that's more important in the sense that even in very benevolent industries like consumer goods, about two thirds of the products fail. If you're in pharmaceuticals, 99.9% of the products fail. So actually, the failure signals are more prevalent, more important than the success signals. So that's something about the collision stage. And then that leads on to probably the most mysterious stage. So an idea is intangible. And I have an idea. You may be a very empathetic guy and you may say, yes, I understand your idea. It sounds interesting. But how do we know that you're thinking about the same idea that I'm thinking about? We can't know for sure. It's what philosophers call the intersubjectivity problem. So how ideas spread is a little bit of a philosophical mystery. But of course, an idea that doesn't spread has absolutely no impact. It may qualify as imagination, but it won't qualify as impactful imagination. 
So I studied how companies overcome the intersubjectivity problem, and I found a very interesting company in Japan called Recruit, R-E-C-R-U-A-T, whose entire personnel system is based upon facilitating the spread of ideas. It's one of the most important ideas in the company. They celebrate their entrepreneurial heroes. They have festivals of ideas. The idea of these festivals is that you get up on stage and present your new idea for business. Thousands of people do this, and it's designed to make you believe that it's your responsibility to do this. It's really fun to do this. It's very high status to do this, and anyone can do this. And that's the whole idea of the festival. And so not surprisingly, this company is a serial business model innovator. They've successfully woken up many sleepy B2B service segments in Japan with this incredible celebration of what they call their entrepreneurial heroes. That's stage four. Definitely not what the average company does. Stage five is also a little mysterious. It's about codification. Let's start with the success of an idea. How do you know if an imaginative idea has been successful? It's because it becomes so dull and pervasive that you take it for granted. So let's take baking soda. I mean, would you like me to talk to you about for three hours about baking soda? Probably not. It's not that exciting. But it was once exciting. The idea that you can buy a chemical from a pharmacist in Germany where the thing was invented, use less eggs in your cake. The cake rises because you put this chemical in the cake. It was an absurd countercultural, counterfactual idea, but it was very successful idea. So now it's very boring. How do things become boring? It's because you're able to replicate the success under a vast variety of conditions and implant this idea as a new normal in people's heads. So essentially, the counterfactual becomes the factual. We're all doing this. This crazy thing that nobody wanted to do, we're all doing it. So how does that happen? That happens through codification. That happens through understanding the conditions for success. Now, that's a tricky thing because let's take the Four Seasons Hotel with its legendary customer service or the Apple retail store, the most productive retail format on earth. If somebody said, explain to these newbies how to do that, a thousand pages detailing all procedures will be totally useless. They probably wouldn't read it. statement about, well, just go with your instinct probably wouldn't work either because they probably do all sorts of things. So how do you capture the essence of success? So I studied companies that are great at codification and wrote a chapter on the art of what I called evolvable scripts because neither do you want something so rigid that it wouldn't work in China. The last stage is much discussed, but very, very hard, which is what we call the encore, which is we were great. We are great. We're stuck. We're going to blow it up, reimagine ourselves and do it again. Very hard to do. Nothing harder than turning around the successful company. Yes, before it gets so bad that you have to transform. Exactly. And so the success trap, you know, the corrosive influence of complacency and the equally corrosive impact of fear, you know, you have to battle all of those demons to be able to successfully renew as a company. So I got to talk to some fascinating people that have done each of these things excellently. And the book is essentially about that art and that practice. And this is the imagination machine. This is the imagination machine. Yeah. Love it. Great. Well, I have so many questions for you and so much that we could explore, but I know that we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I'll close with just two quick questions. One is, how can people find you, follow you, connect with you, learn from you? And what are you working on next? So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. We have a website, bcghendersoninstitute.com, where all of our latest content is. We have, I think, quite an interesting website for the book, The Imagination Machine. I'm working on executive games. So one interesting feature of the book is, I've long believed that you can't stretch your strategy unless you stretch your mind. And I have some 16 executive games that loosen up the imagination of the mind. I'm developing those digitally, so that's one thing I'm working on. 
completely unconnected with anything we've talked about today. I'm quite interested in the language of business. In a sense, we betray how we think and act with the words we use, and business only uses a proportion of the language. You know, So we don't use the word love in business. We don't use the word compassion in business. We don't use the word beauty in business. So I'm interested in what are the words we don't use in business and why and what does that say about business? So I'm doing a big semantic analysis of language of business. I've just written a piece that's coming out this weekend on the connection between personal resilience and business resilience. Resilience is much discussed during the COVID epidemic, but in two completely different guises, personal and organizational. Rodeo P is exploring the connection between the two. Wow. Oh, you have my dream job that you get to just explore these ideas. And my father has been a professor of communication, studying social construction of reality through language and content analysis. And I'm very interested in that application in business. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for the work that you do and just blown away by the diversity of your curiosities and that you actually pursue them and take those ideas and turn them into some tangible, realistic form that benefits all of us. So Martin, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Kahan. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers. Outthinkers.